Well, if you are all pretty mature, I could use every minute I could get. So now I can go 53 minutes long. Let's start. Shall we do that? All right. So this is the equipping hour on Job. It's called Lessons from the Scene of Suffering. That's really what is going on in Job. It is, it is the most tragic scene of suffering outside of one other scene of suffering you'll ever know. Um, Job suffered greatly. I'm going to give you just a couple of quotes to maybe whet your appetite. I came across this one. It's a question. In what good man's sick chamber is Job not welcome? Chamber meaning a room. In what good man's sick room is this book not welcome? God has appointed to many of us in our church um, a room of suffering. He has moved us to a, a room where we have to suffer, we're not well. Um, and Job is God's help for you in that sick chamber. Another quote The great purpose of life is not to stay alive, nor maintain ease and comfort, but to magnify. The purpose of life is to magnify, whether by life or by death, the one who created us and died for us and lives as Lord of all forever, Jesus Christ. That's the purpose of life, is to magnify him. And sometimes you do that by being in your sick chamber. Uh, And so the scene of suffering that Job is in is instructive for us and helpful in so many ways. Um, So why don't we pray? And then we're going to jump in today, and I'm going to try to introduce you to the book of Job a little bit, and we'll do that next week as well, and then we'll um, try to draw some lessons from it if we can. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this book. Lord, I know that for many of us, as we have read it, we're perplexed by it. We're even troubled by it at points. And I pray, Lord, that as we um, study it and draw closer to Job, draw closer to you through Job. I pray, Lord, that you would open our eyes to see all that there is here for us in you and in suffering and help us to watch this Old Testament, innocent, righteous sufferer and help us to think way beyond him to the innocent one the righteous one, Jesus, who suffered because of no fault of his own. So Lord, I pray that Job would, in time as we learn more about it, would grow our affections for our Savior, Jesus. And it's in his name we pray, amen. All right, here's what I want to do for you. Uh, Just by way of introduction, I, I want you to think first off about what the message is that comes from the bookends of this book. The bookends could be thought of as chapters 1 and 2 at the beginning, and then chapter 42, verses 7 to 17 at the end. And so what I'm going to do for you is I'm actually going to read chapter 1 and 2 to you, and then 42, 7 to 17, and I want you to be thinking as I read through them and as you follow along, I want you to think, what's the message that God wants to give to the readers, to us, from the bookends, okay? Job chapter 1, verse 1. You can follow along. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless, upright, fearing God, and turning away from evil. Seven sons and three daughters were born to him. His possessions also were 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and very many servants. And that man was the greatest of all the men of the east. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day. And they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. When the days of feasting had completed their cycle, it's probably them all celebrating their birthdays. Job would send and consecrate them, rising up early in the morning and offering burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, perhaps my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before Yahweh, and Satan also came among them. Yahweh said to Satan, from where do you come? Then Satan answered Yahweh and said, from roaming about on the earth and walking around on it. Yahweh said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? 
For there is no one like him on earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. Then Satan answered Yahweh, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge about him in his house and all that he has on every side? You've blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But put forth your hand now and touch all that he has. He will surely curse you to your face. Then Yahweh said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not put forth your hand on him. So Satan departed from the presence of Yahweh. Now on the day when his sons and his daughters were eating and drinking wine in the oldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job and said, the oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them and the Sabians attacked and took them. They also slew the servants of the edge of the sword and I alone have escaped to tell you. And while he was still speaking, another also came and said, the fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them. And I have alone, I alone have escaped to tell you. And while While he was still speaking, another also came and said, The Chaldeans formed three bands and made a raid on the camels and took them and slew the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. And while he was still speaking, another also came and said, Your sons and your daughters were eating, drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came from across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house. And it fell on the young people and they died. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and he fell to the ground and worshiped. He said, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I shall return there. Yahweh gave and Yahweh has taken away. Blessed be the name of Yahweh. Through all of this, Job did not sin nor did he blame God. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before Yahweh, and Satan also came among them to present himself before Yahweh. Yahweh said to Satan, where have you come from? Then Satan answered Yahweh and said, from roaming about on earth and walking around on it. Yahweh said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? For there is no one like him on earth, a blameless and upright man fearing God and turning away from evil, and he still holds fast his integrity although you incited me against him to ruin him without a cause. Satan answered Yahweh and said, skin for skin. Yes, all that a man has, he'll give for his life. However, put forth your hand now, touch his bone and his flesh. He will curse you to your face. So Yahweh said to Satan, behold, he is in your power. Only spare his life. Then Satan went out from the presence of Yahweh and smote Job with sore boils from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, and he took a potsherd to scrape himself while he was sitting among the ashes. Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Now when Job's three friends heard of all this adversity that had come upon him, they came each one from his own place, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namathite. And they made an appointment together to come to sympathize with him and comfort him. And when they lifted up their eyes at a distance and did not recognize him, they raised their voices and wept. And each of them tore his robe and they threw dust over their heads toward the sky when they sat down on, then they sat down on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights with no one speaking a word to him for they saw that his pain was very great. Turn over to Job chapter 42. Once all of the speeches are done, and that's what happens from chapter 3 really to 42 verse 6, is it's one speech after another speech after another speech. Job will speak and then a and he'll offer his lament in chapter 3, and then Bildad speaks, or Eliphaz speaks, and then Bildad speaks, Zophar speaks, Job speaks in between them. It happens over and over, and then another friend comes, Elihu, and he has several speeches to give, and, and then finally God speaks. Verse 7 of chapter 42. It came about after Yahweh had spoken these words to Job that Yahweh said to Eliphaz, the Temanite, it's one of the three friends, My wrath is kindled against you 
and against your two friends because you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. Now therefore take for yourselves seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves and my servant Job will pray for you. For I will accept him so that I may not do with you according to your folly. I will accept him so that I may not treat you according to your folly. Have you ever seen that before? (laughs) And my servant Job will pray for you. For I will accept him so that I may not do with you according to your folly because you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz the Temanite and Bildad the Shuhite and Zophar the Namathite went and did as Yahweh told them and Yahweh accepted Job. Yahweh restored the fortunes of Job when he prayed for his friends and Yahweh increased all that Job had twofold. Then all his brothers and all his sisters and all who had known him before came to him and they ate bread with him in his house and they consoled him and comforted him for all of the adversities that Yahweh had brought on him. And each one gave him one piece of money and each a ring of gold. Yahweh blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning and he had 14,000 sheep and 6,000 camels and 1,000 yoke of oxen and 1,000 female donkeys. He had seven sons and three daughters. He named the first Jemima, the second Keziah, the third Karen Hapuk. In all the land, no women were found so fair as Job's daughters and their father gave them inheritance among their brothers. After this, after all of the suffering, Job lived 140 years more and saw his sons and his grandsons four generations and Job died an old man full of days. What is the message from the bookend chapters of this book? It is, I'm I'm sure several things, but at a minimum, it is that Job is righteous. He's innocent in his suffering. Prior to his suffering coming, he is innocent. God's testimony twice, in chapter one and in chapter two, is that he says there is no one on earth like him. That's the testimony from Yahweh. Certainly, what chapter 42 tells us is that throughout all of that, and even at the end of it, God's favor was on Job. So Job was an innocent man. He was a righteous man above all others in his practice and the way that he lived his life, and he had God's favor on him. The three friends needed restoration through sacrifice and prayer, but not Job. Let me ask this question for you. So hold on to that. We'll come back to that. When did Job live and where did Job live? Well, chapter 1, verse 1, we find out that he is a man who lived in the land of Uz. We know that that was outside of Canaan. It was outside of the promised land, the land of promise that had been given to Abraham or promised to Abraham and his descendants. And it was to the east, um, The rest of the Old Testament understands the land of Uz to be Edom. Now, if you were to look on a map and find the Dead Sea, you would move just in your mind to the right and to the south of the Dead Sea. So it's not way far away from the land of Canaan, but it is to the east and to the south of the Dead Sea. That tells you where Job lived. When did Job live? Well, let's consider first what is said and then what is not said. And see if that helps us out here. First off, what is said in chapter 1 and in chapter 42 is that Job's wealth is primarily measured by livestock, not by gold coins. Um, Abraham's wealth was measured by livestock. The patriarchs like Jacob and um, Isaac, their wealth was measured by livestock. Solomon's wealth was measured by gold and silver and other types of precious metals. So that says something about when he lived. In Job 42, verse 17, it says after his suffering that Job lived another 140 years. So that probably puts Job's lifespan close to 200. Let me give you some comparisons. Abraham lived 175 years. Terah lived, that's the father of Abraham, lived 205 years. Isaac 
the son of Abraham, lived 180 years. Jacob lived 147 years. And so it appears that Job's lifespan matches more the lifespans of the patriarchs and not even Moses. In Job chapter 1, it says that the Sabians came and the Chaldeans raided. And during the time of Abraham, the Chaldeans were nomadic people. So it seems to match the time period of Abraham. And in Job chapter 1 and in verse 42, Job is functioning in a priestly role for his own household. That puts himself looking more like a patriarch. Let's talk about what is not mentioned in the book of Job anywhere. Nowhere in the book of Job is Abraham mentioned. Nowhere in the book of Abraham is a reference made to God's covenant with Abraham about land, about seed, about blessing. There's no mention of Israel in this book. There's no mention of a slavery in Egypt. There's no mention of Moses. There's no mention of an exodus. There's no mention of Mosaic law. There's no mention of a priestly office and duties that are bound to a tabernacle. There is no mention of an altar that confined the sacrifices to that tabernacle. The absence of all those things is interesting and probably tells you that it is pre-Mosaic, pre-Moses. The conclusion, I think, is that Job is probably a contemporary of Abraham, Isaac, or Jacob. He is of the patriarchal period, but he is outside of Abraham's promise. He's not in the land. He's not sojourning with Abraham. He is outside of the promise to Abraham, but listen carefully. He is not outside Abrahamic faith. He is a believer. He's just not with Abraham under the promise that God gave to him. So that probably tells you, you can write down Genesis 31 verse 53. That's when Laban is talking with Jacob, Abraham's grandson, and he makes a reference to, um, he says that to Jacob that Abraham's God is Nahor's God. Nahor is Abraham's brother who didn't come with him. And evidently, Nahor had the same God that Abraham did, who is Yahweh. And so there is a case that there is uh, Abrahamic faith um, being declared righteous on the basis of faith alone outside of Abraham in, as he sojourns in the land. Some of his family, as Yahweh came and revealed himself to him, became believers as well. And so it makes a case for Job being one and around those people being a man of faith. His friends are, are, are men who believe in only one God. He is the supreme God. He does all that he pleases. He is holy. This is only a book full of orthodox faith in God in the Old Testament sense. So he's a contemporary of Abraham. He has Abrahamic faith, but he is not with Abraham under Abraham's promise. Who wrote this book? I think the best case for it is probably Job. He had only 140 years after it happened to get it into writing. And it was most likely, obviously, written by a, a, an eyewitness who was there. And so maybe Elihu, who is the fourth friend who shows up at the, at, towards the end. But most likely it was Job. Now let me give you a structure and a summary of Job. You can see this on your handout. Um, there's the prologue at the beginning, that's chapters 1 and 2. That's just the introduction, which, by the way, is the most important part of the book. If you skip over chapters 1 and 2 in your Bible reading, and then just start picking up in chapter 3, you're lost. Um, and then what happens following chapter 2 is there's just a ton of speeches. Job starts off in, in chapter 3 with a lament, and then three friends start to speak. Eliphaz... Bildad, and Zophar. And in between each one of those, Job speaks and has a speech in response to their speech. And that goes on from chapter 3 to chapter 31. And then a fourth guy shows up, Elihu, in chapter 32. And he has a really long speech that lasts from chapter 32 to 37. Job has no response given to that speech. And then finally, God just starts speaking in chapter 38, and you finally get some relief from what is going nowhere with the others. And that goes to 42, verse 6. There are two points in that speech with God where Job gives two very small 
humble, repentant responses. But it's primarily speeches from God. And then, of course, it ends with an epilogue or a conclusion. And we read that as well. What I want to do next is I want to spend a good portion of time just talking about the prologue. Because um, if you're going to be in this class and study and, and maybe even follow the reading plan that I have for you, and I'll talk about that towards the end, um, you're going to want to have a good grasp of what's going on in chapters 1 and 2. Job could not receive, in the chapters 1 and 2, he could not receive any higher commendation that he did because twice God said, there is no one like him on the face of the earth in righteousness. And both chapters have very important statements made in chapter 1, verse 22, and in chapter 2, verse 10, that in all of this initial suffering that came upon him, Job did not sin in response to it. Why is that important? It's important because his three friends who are sitting with him do not have a category for suffering coming to somebody like that who's righteous, who's innocent. Their view of God in relationship to man is that he blesses the righteous ones and he curses the wicked man. So Job, you couldn't be righteous because look how you're suffering. And any attempt, therefore, by Job to go say, no, 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 I, I am righteous, only sounds to them like he's arrogant and he's not teachable, and it becomes a vicious cycle of speeches. If Job actually is not righteous in his lifestyle, in his living, then the whole rest of the book falls apart, especially the end. the reader is immediately aware of the cause of Job's suffering in the prologue at the beginning that Job and his friends did not have access to. We get to see into the courtroom of heaven that when it all happened to Job initially, they didn't know. God gives to you and me, the reader, he gives to us the seat of advantage that Job and his friends didn't have when it first happened. And what do we get to see? It's primarily this. Don't miss this. Satan is in contention with God. That's what stands out twice at the beginning of the book. Satan is in contention with God. About what? About this. About why God's servants are faithful to him. That's what Satan is going to contend with God about. Satan wants to prove that Job is only faithful to God because of the blessings you've given him, God. Take those blessings away and Job will not be faithful to you anymore. Twice he says he will curse you to your face. So Satan says to, to God. And so this is a slap in the face of God it's, an, it's a satanic attack on God's sufficiency for his servants. It is a, a satanic attack on his desirableness to his servants. It's an attack on how satisfying God alone is for his servants. Satan is saying, God alone is not enough to hold Job's loyalty. You've got to give him stuff. You've got to buy his loyalty with blessings. And so what is God to do with that? So God lets the leash on Satan out long enough to touch Job twice. Why? To prove that God is sufficient. You can take everything away from him and he will not curse me to my face. He will stay loyal to me. I am enough for him. Why is that important to get at the beginning? Because Job doesn't know it. And he will speak so many words from what he doesn't know. And his friends don't know it. And they will speak so many words from what they don't know. And it's really sad what happens. 
Job and his friends can't see the position that God is in. They can't see what he wants to prove through Job. They can't see the role that Satan plays. Job at times is going to actually in his speeches attribute to God what Satan was responsible for. His friends can only think that God is enacting retributive justice against Job. Job, you're getting this because you deserved it. When actually just the opposite is happening, God's favor is on him. God favors Job. And he holds on to him through this intense suffering to demonstrate Job's not going to leave me. To prove that Job doesn't need God's blessings to be faithful to God. Here's the precious truth of Job. God holds on securely but silently to Job while Satan thrashes him. He holds on to him securely, but silently, while Satan thrashes him. God will allow this to happen and show Job will hold fast to him under God's mercy and compassion in the suffering. Job will endure. He will hold fast his integrity. What that means is he'll hold fast his integrity with me and my relationship with him, God could say. And the silence from God is disturbing to Job. It's disturbing to you and me when we read it. And Job can't see God's silent mercy and compassion upholding him. So that he will not curse God, but instead remain faithful to God. He can't see that. And this is why Job is suffering. Not because he has sinned and he has merited the suffering. But because Satan wants to see Job curse God when he strips everything away. Satan wants to show that Job doesn't truly love God for God alone. Take away the blessings and Satan will prove God is not satisfying enough without the blessings. He is not desirable enough to Job. So God, swallow this, God allows the suffering to prove his servant is faithful not due to the blessings that God has given to him. He will indeed endure in faithfulness even without the blessings. He will indeed endure in faithfulness even though severe testing and severe loss comes to him. And this is the seat of advantage that we as the readers get right away, but that Job and his friends didn't have. Now, if that's what's going on, you think this, what kind of friends and comforters does Job need? Job's solution to his suffering is not repentance. But that's all they want to talk to him about. If this is not solvable through repentance, then what does he need? He needs perseverance, not repentance. He needs to maintain his love for God. He needs to grow in his desire for God. He needs to explore new ways in thinking of how God is sufficient for me. I can have everything else taken away, but God is enough. That's what he needs help with. He needs help to pursue God still and to cling to him. He needs, he needs to be comforted. He needs compassion. And unfortunately, that does not happen. Now let's, real quickly, I gotta watch my time. Let me just, re, I'll just reference you back to James 5. We don't need to re-preach uh, Josh's message because it was very sufficient. Um, 5.11 is the only um, New Testament text that references Job. You've heard of him. You've heard of his endurance. And you heard that the Lord is full of mercy and compassion. In what sense was God full of mercy and compassion for Job? God held on to him securely and silently so that he would not become unfaithful to him. Job is really about the fullness of God's compassion and his mercy 
for those who, who will suffer. And James knows that this is the message of Job, and he says, be patient. Everything Job, uh, Josh said earlier, just remember that. Everything he said earlier, that's, he understands, James does, the book of Job. All right, so you get that in the epilogue. That's the beginning, or the prologue. I'm sorry, that's the beginning. Let's talk about the speeches that come next. The speeches from Job, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. These three friends, they knew Job, they came to visit him, and they were not persuaded by what they remembered and knew about their friend, about his character. They knew he was a righteous man. They have a wisdom, they have a theology that is not wrong, it's just narrow. It's divinely designed to be narrow. God has a wisdom and God has a theology, you're going to see here, that is designed by him to spread so far and no more. And they have that. And that small, narrow wisdom and theology they have ends up trumping what they knew about Job, their friend, who was only righteous. Their theology, their narrow theology said, he must He must be wicked, I guess. The suffering is the consequence of that. Blessing is the consequence of of righteous living. And loss and suffering is the consequence of wicked living. God blesses the righteous. He curses the wicked. That's the only lens they have to look through as they gaze upon their friend in agony. They sat there for seven days. What were they doing? They were in shock. And they were probably working through their theology, which was narrow and limited. And by narrow and limited, I do not mean wrong. It's not wrong, as you'll see. And if that's the only lens they can look through and and try to make sense and connect dots on what's going on with Job, the only thing that they can do is call a righteous man to repentance. Listen, a righteous man has lost all of his children. He's lost all of his possessions. His life is hanging by a thread. He has not sinned to deserve this, and his friends are calling him to repent. No comfort comes in that call. No compassion comes in that call. All of the speeches of the three friends are variations on that. From chapter 3 to chapter 31, it's just one recycled version of that after the other, after the other, after the other. And the two parties are polarized instantly. They have no comfort to offer him. Why? Because it is possible to have a correct theology, a limited wisdom, and misapply it with horrible pastoral effects. They're polarized immediately. Um, If chapters one and two reveal a courtroom like in heaven, God is in heaven and the sons of God come and, and Satan comes and Satan indicts God in the courtroom of heaven, begins to prosecute God in heaven, Well, in chapters 3 to 31, Job and his friends create their own courtroom. The scene of suffering becomes a courtroom. His friends have indictments against Job. They begin to prosecute him at the scene of suffering. Job ends up having to defend himself. He doesn't even get a court-appointed lawyer. Job has his own accusations in this court. He makes his own courtroom. He has accusations ready to make against God. He, he subpoenas God. In fact, he's ready to hold God in contempt because God's not showing up and talking. He's got some explaining to do. So God becomes the defendant in Job's little courtroom. Listen, Job doesn't rebuke his friend's limited or narrow theology or wisdom so much. What he rebukes is their application of it. He rebukes the, 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 the limitation of it to explain Job's situation. And it becomes painfully clear that God is not in a hurry to step in and clarify this whole thing. It just keeps going on and on and on. God does not continue to 
but, but God throughout all that continues to silently but securely hold on to Job in mercy. Now, there's these three cycles of speeches. Here's how it goes. Once Job laments, Job opens his mouth and it drives his friends crazy. And so Elihu speaks. And then Job speaks in response to that. And then Bildad speaks. And then Job speaks in response to that. And then Zophar speaks. And Job speaks in response to that. Ding! You go back and you'd think... That was a mess. How many chapters did that take? And it starts all over again. Elihu, Job. Bildad, Job. Zophar, Job. Ding! One more time. Elihu speaks, Job. Bildad speaks, Job. Zophar doesn't even try. He doesn't even get one more time. He's just done. And it ends there. And... It is brutal, the whole thing. There are no shortcuts. Now, if I was going to write the book of Job, here's what I would do. I would just do that once. Just let us see the pain of that interaction one time between the three friends and Job. Let's just, there's a Cliff Notes version that could come out. But that's the point, isn't it? The very experience one often has in reading through Job. I mean, you get lost in it. You're like, didn't I? I feel like I just read this. Uh-huh, you did. The very experience one has oftentimes in reading these seemingly endless recycled debates, it actually matches the, the actual grueling, seemingly endless nature of innocent suffering. It just keeps going on and on and on. The way the book is written illustrates, it matches the difficulty of persevering through innocent suffering when you don't get answers. Let me give you some questions that that could be asked. Why is this still going on? This looks just like it did yesterday. I'm confused. Listen, those questions work either for the reader plodding through Job or for Job. And that's the point. This, uh, this brings the, the speeches of Job and his friends to an end at the end of chapter 31. And then we have the speeches by Elihu. That's 32, chapter 32 to 37. Another friend, all of a sudden in chapter 32, shows up. He was not included and in, mentioned in the, the three friends in chapter uh, 2. His name is Elihu. He has been there, though. He has been looking on and listening. You can imagine in a, in a, maybe in a village setting, and especially this man who is as wealthy as he was. I mean, you can imagine everybody around is like, let's go, let's go see the, the rich man. Did you hear what happened to him? I mean, there would have been a scene around this, a crowd around this man, and Elihu is certainly there. And he has been a careful observer through everything that's been going on. We find out that he is a younger man. He says that about himself. And he acts a little bit at the beginning in chapter 32 like he's the graduate um, student hesitant to reprimand his professors for their lack of insight. He steps in when the stalemate between Job and his three friends has reached a climax. He's not happy with either party, rightly so. He thinks he can solve the dilemma. He does something so much better than both sides from both parties. But when he is done speaking, the impasse still remains. Little difference has been made by that. And then finally, you get the speeches by God in chapter 38 to 42, 6. Finally, God steps in and speaks after Elihu. The suffering of Job will indeed come to an end, but not without first correcting Job for the way he has been in the suffering. Now, I want you to think about this really carefully, and you can watch for this as you read through Job the next time you do that. In chapter 38 to 42, 6, God does not make any statements of clarifications about how Job was righteous before the suffering came. He makes, he's not, God is not concerned when he finally starts to speak to go back and clarify what happened before it. That's not his concern. These speeches from God to Job are all about Job's sanctification process that he needed since he opened his mouth in the suffering. 
These speeches are about the process of suffering, not what preceded the suffering. And that's instructive to us. And I think this is one of the reasons God has this book in our Bibles is so that we understand that one of the things he's most concerned about is our own sanctification process in the suffering, not answering everything about why. Okay? God fires at Job from chapter 38 to 42, repeated rhetorical questions that have the effect of humbling Job who had begun to exalt himself against God. The string of unanswerable rhetorical questions show that Job is really no match for God at all in the dispute. And God did indeed hold Job till the end securely, but he also needed to humble him in his rightful place. And at two different points in these speeches, Job responds with a brief, humble, uh, humble teachable repentance. And then we finish with the epilogue as we read. You saw that in chapter 42, verses 7 to 17. God chastises the three friends. Now, interestingly, he does not mention Elihu, the fourth friend, as one who needs to be chastised, disciplined, rebuked. But he, God graciously offers to the three friends a way of restoration. And interestingly, it will come through, their way of restoration comes through the innocent sufferer mediating for them. Does that sound familiar? And then the chapter ends with God bringing even greater blessing on Job after all of the suffering than what he had before the suffering ever came, and Job endured. God mercifully, God in compassion held on to him securely, albeit silently, so that Job endured. God is seen in the end to be sufficient enough for Job without the blessings. Everything was taken away from Job and Job did not abandon God. He would not curse God to his face. Satan is proved wrong. And the prosperity that God poured out on Job at the end is God's slap back in the face of Satan because God is going to continue his policy of blessing his righteous servants anyway. It's as if God is going to say... I will continue my practice of blessing Job because it was never the reason he was faithful to me anyway and it gives me an opportunity to demonstrate my abundant generosity. So I'll give him twice as much as he had before. It's not why he's loyal to me. Servants of God hold to him not merely because he blesses them. So there's the book of Job in a summary for you. Let's talk about the book of Job in the rest of the Bible. It's in the wisdom literature section of your Old Testament. You know, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, it fits there. And Job is an important wisdom addition to the wisdom that is emphasized in the theology that's emphasized under the Mosaic Covenant and in Proverbs. And if you're troubled by what I said earlier about his friends had a limited or narrow wisdom or theology. Let me, let me clarify that for you now. Proverbs strongly puts forward and emphasizes that God blesses the righteous and he curses the wicked. That is not wrong. That is true. But that is a wisdom or a theology, if you want to call it, that is divinely designed by God to only spread so far over the bread of life. It doesn't explain Job's situation, does it? And so therefore, the book of Job offers its own wisdom and theology that gets added to that, not replacing it, but gets to sit alongside that to help explain what the other wisdom was not designed by God to explain. In Mosaic, under the Mosaic Covenant, uh, when you get to, is it Deuteronomy 29, the blessings and the curses, um, the, the blessings and the curses. If you're righteous, Israel, you are, you are those who are to believe in me and I'll declare you righteous on the basis of your faith alone. Now, as you live your life, if you are righteous, I will bless you. And if you are not righteous, I will curse you. So that, that theology, that kind of wisdom for living is built into the Mosaic Covenant. It is not wrong. It's limited. Proverbs 
deals with that kind of wisdom. It's not all that Proverbs says. Proverbs says more than that too. But that's primarily the thrust of Proverbs. And Job is so, so necessary to come and sit alongside that because where the limited wisdom will not spread and offer an explanation for innocent suffering, Job does. And innocent suffering is going to be a really important part of the gospel. Right? So Job sits into your Bible with that kind of a really important place. And let me ask you again, when did Job live? Before Moses ever wrote. And so what did God want to give to his servants from the very earliest days? You need to have a category for an innocent man, a righteous man suffering with no explanation maybe with some misconceptions, some misunderstandings. We're going to talk about that next week. God does delight in prospering the righteous. He does. And God does guarantee that the wicked will be punished. But just because a man is blessed in the world does not mean that he's righteous. And Job's case, just because a man is suffering doesn't mean that he was wicked. So we need a wisdom that spreads a little bit further than that. Job used that same limited wisdom. You know what he did with it? He used it to make God have to explain himself. You're right, God, I believe this, God. You, you bless the righteous, I've only ever been righteous, so you better explain what you're doing. You can't even use that limited wisdom to call God into your courtroom and explain to you what he's doing. Job is mentioned in Ezekiel 14. He is mentioned in, uh, he's, uh, Job is quoted in 1 Corinthians 3.19. Paul quotes Job 5.13, and of course, he is mentioned in James 5.11. Let me tell you about the reading plan I have for you, and we'll wrap things up here in the next five minutes or so. Um, on, I, there's not one printed out for you. It's 19 pages long. Um, it is on the Equipping Hour page, and you can get to the link. I came up with a 35-day reading plan for you through Job. If you go home today and do day one, uh, day 35 will be the Saturday before class six. And so you will show up here having read all of Job and in it are a lot of questions that are meant to help you think prayerfully and worshipfully through what you're reading. It is not primarily observation questions that are gonna help you understand every clause and prepositional phrase and things like that. It's primarily a worshipful, devotional type of thing that's going to help you think of what's going on here and what does this mean for me as I consider this? And so the questions, you shouldn't view them as exhaustive. That These are all of the questions that could ever be thought of to help you think about this passage. Rather, you should let them be springboard questions that make you start thinking of a whole lot more questions you want to ask God in a prayerful, worshipful way. So you can print that off and kill your own forest, knock it down uh, as you print out 19 pages, or just look at it and use that. I hope it's a blessing to you. Let me tell you where we're going to be going in the next, this is at the end of that handout I gave you. Next week, class number two, you will have read the first 10 chapters of Job. I was anticipating doing, uh, when I first started thinking about all this and planning for it, I was anticipating this being in a classroom. I was thinking like build size. I was thinking like wellspring size. I was thinking of like interaction Probably, I don't know what that's going to be like. That's going to be a little scary. It's kind of like Easter and Christmas with all the little kids up here. Um, but we'll maybe try and see if there's a few moments where you have some questions or some observations you want to share. Um, and we'll make sure we have a heresy alert button somewhere that we can push and for us all. Um, and then we're going to talk about the unique, next week's really important because we're going to talk about the uniqueness of the book of Job and how it is provided by God at this early, early patriarchal period, maybe not in writing, but the story would have been known, to provide categories for such important gospel kinds of things. And so we're going to look at that next week.
On July um, 7, that class number three, we'll do some more sharing and questions that you might have from Job 11 to 20. And by the way, I am not prepared to answer every question in Job. You're going to ask me a question, and I can almost tell you nine out of my ten answers are going to be, I don't know, I've thought about that too, and I have no idea. Okay? Um, And then we will start to talk about goals that we can strive for in suffering, some lessons from the scene of suffering. What, what, What kinds of things should we put our focus on? Like, for instance... Um, do not make the emphasis, I need to know why this is happening. Don't, don't, don't focus on what you don't know about God in this. Focus on what you do know about God in this. Things like that would be good goals for us to remember in our suffering. On July 14th, we'll, you'll, we'll have read through Job 28 by that point. And then the 14th and the 21st, we'll probably just talk about realities to face in the scene of suffering. There are just tons of things that happen in this interaction between Job and his friends that are just realities that happen when, when, when sinners suffer, when believers suffer, and things to just, if you accept that that's a reality that takes place in suffering, you, you won't be shocked by it when you see it happen in your own family or in your own church. And then the last class, Lord willing, July 8th, 28th, um, you will have been done with all of your reading and will probably do some kind of an overview of God's speeches to Job, or at least maybe we'll do an exposition of 42, 7 to 17, and um, finish up with that. So that is class one down, Lord willing, five more to go. Um, Make sure you get on the web and you can print out, and every Sunday before you come, you can Uh, Print out a handout if you want to take notes on it, okay? Why don't we pray and then we'll be dismissed. Father, thank you for this precious book from you. Thank you for, uh, I, I love what it says about your heart for your servants, that you would provide it so, so early. That tells us what you're thinking of. It tells us that you are a shepherd and you're trying to give us categories to think about important things that are coming on your plan, on your timetable. But you, wanna, you want your people early on to be able to punch the coordinates in for the target that's coming. You, you put your hand on their shoulders and you turn them to the left or to the right or wherever they need to look at your goal so that they can begin looking in the right direction and they get categories for things that are so central to everything that we love in Jesus Christ. Thank you, Father, for being that kind of God that you would care for us and care for your people that way. And Lord, thank you for the appointments with suffering that you have brought to us, brought to our church, even for the ones that are coming and we do not know them yet. We, we know we're well prepared. We know we're well prepared. We, we have this book from you and we want to learn more about what it means that, that maybe our suffering might want to, you might want to strip away from us the things that will make it clearer to us why we really are loyal to you. It's not because of what you give, but we need to be loyal to you just because of who you are, because you are the delight of our souls. Oh Lord, we need to learn that message and trials are a, an excellent tool in your hand to demonstrate that. Lord, we pray that you would glorify yourself with this study, and we ask it in Jesus' name, amen.